as I had said in the previous year, Yaakov is now concerned with mollifying and placating Esav, since he is now going to meet Esav very imminently. Therefore, <coughs> Yaakov wishes to present an argument to Esav, which will counter the main complaint or taina of Esav against him. The main complaint that Esav has lodged against Yaakov, and for which he, Esav, is so angry at Yaakov, is that Yaakov deceitfully misappropriated the blessings of Yitzchak. He stole the blessings of Yitzchak, which he, Esav, rightfully had claimed to. Therefore, Yaakov tells the messengers, he tells the Malochim, that he is sending to Esav, that they are to present to Esav an argument which will utterly justify and vindicate him in taking the brochus of Yitzchak. Now, we know that the brochus of Yitzchak is really the permanence of the union of Mashiach ben Yosef. Therefore, he wants the Malachim or angels to totally justify his taking of the union of ben Yosef away from Esav. He tells them to say to Esav, Im loven gati, I resided with Lovan. What does that mean? I went into the Klippus just like you. You were an Ishsodeh, and therefore you went into the Klippus. And I went to live with Lovan. But unlike you who fell into the hands of the Sitra Achra, and on the contrary, became the very agent of the Sultan of the Sitra Achra, and you utterly failed at the task of Mashiach ben Yosef, which was originally assigned to you, on the contrary, you brought tremendous kilkulam to the Bria, as I had mentioned previously. I, however, have remained steadfast in my righteousness. I did not learn from Lovan's evil ways. On the contrary, I vanquished the Sitra Achra by performing the Taryag Mitzvahs, and I was massacring a great deal of the kilkul in creation, thereby fulfilling the union of the Mashiach ben Yosef, which I took from you. Therefore, I was completely justified in my actions of taking away the blessings of Yitzchak, which is in truth the permanent designation and the power of the Mashiach ben Yosef, and taking them for myself. In other words, he says to him, Im loven gauti, I have lived with Lovan. In other words, he wants to tell the angels to tell Esav, I lived with Lovan and still observed the Tayag Mitzvah, fulfilling the task of the Mashiach ben Yosef. Thus, since I fulfilled the task of Mashiach ben Yosef, I deserve the blessings of Yitzchak, which is the delegation of that task. Since you completely failed at the task of Mashiach ben Yosef, then you do not deserve to possess the union of Mashiach ben Yosef, which is what the blessings of Yitzchak are all about. If this is what he asks the angels to tell Esau, that since I have been successful at Mashiach ben Yosef, that task, I therefore deserve the blessings which is the permanent delegation of the union of Mashiach ben Yosef. You, however, who has failed at this task, of course, has deserved to lose it to me. Now, this is the essential argument that he told the Malochim, or the angels, to present to Esau. Now, afterwards, he then instructed these very angels to present to Esau yet a second argument to counter Esau's claim. And we know that Esau's claim was that Yaakov undeservingly or deceitfully took away the brochus from him. He took away the brochus that Yitzchak was supposed to give Esau, and instead he took them for himself. This is Esau's claim. So Yaakov 
was now going to instruct the Malochim to present to Esav another argument, a counterclaim. Yaakov says, tell him that I possess a shaw, an ox, a chamor, a donkey, soin, flock of sheep, and also eved shifcho, a servant and a maidservant. Give him that message. Now, he wants to tell this to Esav in case Esav offers a critique against this first argument. And what is that? He says to Esav, through the Malachim, If you ask me, if you Esav ask me to show you proof that I have indeed done what I say I have done, that is, that I say that I have successfully completed the task of Ben Yosef by remaining a tzaddik in Lovens Vishust, then you should know. In other words, if you ask me to prove this, then know that I have an ox, which means the Yisrael of Mashiach ben Yosef. And of course, the individual who represents that is Yosef, the Shevet, the son Yosef. I have a donkey, which means the Yisrael of the Mashiach ben David. And the one who represents that, of course, is Yehuda. And I also have Tzoyin, Flak, and an Eved, and a Shifcha, a servant and a maidservant, which of course means the tribes of Israel, and in general refers to the nation of Israel. Now, thus the fact that I now have these spiritual entities proves beyond any doubt that I have indeed fulfilled the union of Ben Yosef, or else I would never have been able to have them as my sons. This is what Yaakov tells Esau. This is what he means to communicate to Esau by telling him that I have an ox, a donkey, flock, and also a servant and a maidservant, that he means to tell him the second argument, that if you want me to prove to you the fact that I have been successful at the task of the union of Ben Yosef, then you should know that I have those things which only the successful completion of that task could have possibly accomplished. And what was that? That I have brought down the Esoid, the foundation, the Shamas, of both the union of Ben Yosef and the union of Ben David. And my sons, Yosef and Yehuda, have them in themselves. And not only that, but I have also brought down the Shvatim, which is Klai Yisrael. And the fact that I have these spiritual entities proves that I have beyond a doubt accomplished the union of Ben Yosef at the house of Lovan. This is what Yaakov tells Esav. And this is the way he proves to Esav that what he presented to him before, that argument, is now definitely true because he has all these spiritual entities. Now, at this point, we may ask a question. When Yaakov tells Esau that he possesses these spiritual entities, why does he refer to the tribes of Israel, or why does he refer to Israel in two ways, both as Tzoyin, flock, and also as Eved Veshivcho, a servant and a maidservant. In other words, why does he say twice to Esau? Because he's really referring to the same, uh, same idea twice. He says, I also have Tzoyin of Flak, which means Israel, the nation of Israel, the tribes. And then he says, I also have a servant and a maidservant, which also refers to the tribes or the nation of Israel. Why does it refer to Israel twice? What is he trying to say to Esau? And the answer to that is that these two times, that this two times 
in terms of the fact that they refer to Israel is in reality a third argument to counter Esav's claim. Thus Yaakov says to Esav the following, If you, Esav that is, <coughs> say to me that even if it is true that you have been successful in the task of Ben Yosef by observing the Tariyad commandments, the 613 mitzvahs by Lavan, even if it is true that as proof of this fact that you observe Tariyad mitzvahs by Lavan, you have sons who are these spiritual entities. Still, if either you or your sons or their descendants, for that matter, sin, if they do Averis, then all of you will lose these spiritual gifts, and they in turn will be given to another nation or another people. So you have these spiritual entities only temporarily, until you sin. So why, if you can lose them, and actually, ultimately, I know you will lose them, because I am sure that your descendants will sin, why then did you bother to steal them from me in the first place, since they won't even remain by you permanently, only temporarily? So then why are you stealing them from me in the first place? This is what uh, Yaakov is saying, if Esav should say such a kainah, such a critique. So therefore Yaakov says to him, to this, critique, Yaakov answers that I possess both a flock and a servant and maidservant. What is Yaakov saying to him? Both metaphors refer to Israel. Yaakov says the following to Esau, the tikkunum which I achieved in the Bria, in creation, was so great that the Rabbani Shalom has promised me that no matter what I or my descendants do, if we are righteous or if we fall into sin, it doesn't make a difference. The universe can and will only achieve its intended perfected state only through me and my offspring, and no one else. This is what Yaakov tells Esau. Thus, the Rabboni has promised me that even though we sin, even though either I or my descendants sin, he will provide us an alternative method to Masakin the Bria. This is the method of Yisurin, which we know comes through the attribute of Anhogasa Yichud, that backup system which the Rabbanishalim employs to make sure that the Jews rectify or massacre creation. Therefore, Yaakov says, when I took the brochus of Yitzchak away from you, I intended to do such a successful job at fulfilling the Indian of Ben Yosef that I would be given this Indian permanently to me and to my descendants. Therefore, I, and you should know I have been successful at this. In other words, the Rebbe has truly promised me that no matter what I or my descendants do, he will activate on Hagas Yichud, which means that ultimately I or my descendants will misakin creation, and we are the only ones who can do this. So therefore, in response to this, Yaakov says to him, I have a flock, I have sheep. This means that the Jews are sometimes as a flock of sheep who are led against their will from one pasture to another pasture. In other words, the Jews are at times led from one nation to another nation against their will to endure sufferings and persecutions at the hands of these nations in order to bring a tikkun to creation through the method of Yisurim which is the attribute of Anhogas HaYichud of the Rabbanu Thus, with this metaphor, when he refers to the Jews as flock Sheep, he tells Esau that even if the Jews sin and they are led as a flock from one pasture to the other pasture, 
In the case of the Jews, they are led from one nation to another nation to endure sufferings in terms of Hanhogas Yuchad. You should know, they will never lose the ability of Ben Yosef to massacre the Kilkul in creation, but will rather achieve this Tikkun through another method, which of course is Yisurin. This is what Yaakov tells him. Therefore, I have a flock, I have Jews, I have a nation Israel, who sometimes acts in the manner of a flock, that just like a flock of sheep is led from one pasture to another pasture against its will by the shepherd, so also Israel sometimes assumes the form of a flock in the sense that they are brought from one, pasture, from one nation to another nation in order to endure sufferings because they are being massacred in the creation through Yisurin. Then, ya- then Yaakov tells Esau that I have also a servant and a maidservant. That Israel is also sometimes a servant and a maidservant. This means that the Jews are sometimes true servants of the Rabbani Shlom, In that they are doing righteousness and they are not sinning. Therefore he calls them a servant and a maidservant. True servants of the Rabbani Shlom. Thus they massacre creation not through Yisurun as a flock, but rather through Torah and Mitzvahs, which is the true preferred way to do this. In other words, that Jews are instead of being a flock, being led against their will from one nation to another, they are really servants and maidservants of the Rabbani Shlom. Being massacred in the Bria through, of course, Torah and Mitzvahs. Therefore, Yaakov tells Esau in his third argument, that I have Israel, the nation who will ultimately bring creation to its intended perfected state, in either the form of a flock who will achieve this Tikkun, through Yisurin, activating Anhogas HaYichud, or in the form of servants who will serve the Rabbani Shalom through Torah and Mitzvahs. That's why he tells Esau that he has Israel in both the form of a flock, Anhogas HaYichud, and also in the form of uh, servant and maidservant, in the sense that they are truly righteous and they massacre the Bria through Torah and Mitzvahs. This removes the argument of Esau that you're going to lose it anyway. So why did you take it from me in the first place? So Yaakov tells me, I will not lose it. Because my descendants must massacre the Bria, either as a flock, where they are led from one nation to the other nation, and through Yisurun they are massacring the Bria through Anogas HaYichun, or they will massacre the Bria in the form of the preferred way, which is as servants and maidservants, to massacre the Bria by observing Torah and Mitzvahs. This is what Yaakov tells Esau, and that is his third argument. Yaakov then presents his fourth and final argument to Esau against Esau's possible claim. Yaakov tells Esau that if you, Esau, say again, that wait a minute, how do I know that you, Yaakov, have really done all this, what you say you have done? How do I know that you really have been righteous by Lovin, that you have really observed the Tayyad Mitzvahs by Lovin? How do I know if you really have been tremendously successful at fulfilling the task of Ben Yosef? How do I know if you have really been brought, if you have really brought down these spiritual entities into your children? And how do I know if you have been really promised by the Rabbani Shlam to be the nation to always massacre the Bria, albeit by different methods? How do I know if anything you say is true? Where is your proof to back up all your arguments? 
I don't see this. I don't see the task of Ben Yosef. I don't see these spiritual entities. I have not heard the promise that God made you. How do I know any of this stuff is true? Where is your proof? And in order to counter this last argument of Esav, which is really the most powerful, because it means that Yaakov has to prove everything he's saying, it is in response to this possible critique of Esav that Yaakov decides to send his messengers, not men, but angels. He sends to him those very malachim that he created from his intense avoider, because you recall those malachim are really the malachim that were created as a result of his avoider, as I had mentioned previously. It is those malachim that he decides to send. These malachim or angels testify to the fact that Yaakov indeed fulfilled the Tariyad mitzvahs by loving. They also testify to the fact that he successfully achieved the fulfillment of the task of Mashiach ben Yosef. Why? Because they were created from that fulfillment. That's why they're here. They, this is why, therefore, that Yaakov sends angels, malochim, and not men. Because the messengers themselves are the fourth and the final argument against Esau. They constitute the final proof. The shluchim themselves are really the proof or the vindication that Yaakov has indeed done what he has said that he has done. They indeed state that whatever Yaakov has said, this is exactly what is done. Because the proof of this is the malochim who were created by the very acts that Yaakov testifies to Esau that he has done. But Yaakov does not only select malochim or angels from the group or camp of angels that were created from and testifies to fulfillment of the task of Mashiach ben David, but he also selects angels from the group or camp of angels created from and which testified to his fulfillment of the task of Mashiach ben Yosef. Because as you recall, the Medrash said, that he sent Malachim from both camps. And I had asked previously, why does he send it from both camps? Thus Yaakov proves by the very messengers he sends that he indeed deserves deserved the blessings of Yitzchak, which is the permanent delegation of the task of Mashiach ben Yosef, and not Esav. Thus the angels present to Esav four arguments to Esav, vindicating Yaakov's taking of the brochos from Yitzchak their father. In other words, the Malochim testify to the fact that Yaakov indeed has done what he said he has done, and the fact that the Malochim come from both camps, from the camp of the Malochim of Ben David, and from the camp of the Malochim of Ben Yosef, from the fact that they come from both camps proves that he has indeed fulfilled the task of Mashiach Ben Yosef, as testified, as proven by <clears throat> the presence of Malochim, which he is sending to Esau, and therefore he deserves the brochus, which is the permanent delegation of this task of Mashiach ben Yosef, that he deserves it, and not Esav. And we see therefore that the entire presentation of the Malachim to Esav is nothing more than the presentation of three arguments against any of the claims that Esav will make against Yaakov, and that they themselves constitute the fourth argument. This then is what transpires when Yaakov sends Malochim to Esav. 
Let us now continue with the narrative. The Malochim, the angels whom Yaakov sent to Esav, return and tell him that Esav is coming to meet him with a band of 400 men, presumably to do Yaakov harm. Now at that point, Yaakov had great fear. Why was Yaakov so afraid of Esav when he heard that he was coming with 400 men? You should know that a Russia can only do harm to a tzaddik if the tzaddik has sinned thereby, instigating a kitrik against the tzaddik. That is the only way the Russia can harm the tzaddik. Even if the Russia comes with thousands of men, if there is no kitrik against that tzaddik, if there is no chet involved, then the Russia can have no shlita, can have no power whatsoever over the tzaddik. Now, as has been mentioned in the previous Shia, the major kitrik against Yaakov was that Esav was extremely great in Kibbut Ov. Whereas Yaakov, not only was he inferior to Esav in Kibbut Ov, in the midst of Kibbut Ov Vo'im, as I mentioned previously, he was also partially remiss in Kibbut Ov because of the 20 years he did not serve his father. He went away to Lovin, he was gone for 20 years and now he was on his way back. So because he did not serve his father as Esav had done for the past 20 years, he was even in a worse position in terms of uh, as compared to Esav. As the Targum Yonison ben Uziel states that uh, Yaakov was very afraid because of the fact that for the last 20 years he had not observed Kibra over Aim. Therefore Yaakov feared because of this possible kitrug against him. He then engaged in a threefold strategy which the Torah relates to us. First, he divided his camp into two sections, thinking that if one was slain, the other would escape. The second strategy that he engaged in was that he prayed to the Rabbanishim for divine compassion and assistance. The third strategy is that he sent numerous gifts to Esau to placate and to mollify Esau. These are the three strategies that Yaakov engaged in in order to uh, make sure that no harm would come to him as a result of Esau. Now, afterwards the Torah relates that he arose at night and took his wives and his children and all his possessions and brought them over at the crossing of the Yabok River. In other words, he brought them all over to the other side of the river. Now, at this point, we now come to one of the most profoundly mysterious events in the entire Torah. What event is this? This is the event of the battle that transpired between Yaakov and a mysterious stranger, between Yaakov and an unknown opponent. Now, it is extremely difficult to fathom the true story. And remember that the true theme of any incident must be capable of answering and resolving all difficult questions, not just a select few. This is the criteria of the validity of an interpretation. That that interpretation, if it is true, has to be able to resolve all the difficulties that are, uh, that are uh, enumerated on a particular parasha. Not only that, in addition, it must be the same general theme that has been going on in the previous, or rather on previous to this incident. incident. Thus, the story must fit in the entire antecedent events and be a logical consequence of those very events which transpired previously. In other words, the story cannot just, or rather the interpretation cannot just be an understanding of the story as it is here and be completely and therefore 
This story is completely unrelated to what happened before and after. It must relate to what happened before and relate to what happens afterwards. It has to be a single thread that weaves its way throughout the entire story. Furthermore, the interpretation of the incident must display a certain beauty and elegance and leave you with a feeling that it is not an arbitrary view, but rather is a real understanding of what has happened. Let us see if we can understand the story of the fight between Yaakov and a mysterious stranger. Let us start by reviewing the Pesukim. It says in the Torah, Vayivoser Yaakov levadoi, and Yaakov remained alone on the other side, in other words, after he had transferred all his children, his wives, and his possessions across the river. He apparently went back over the other side, and he, the Torah says that Vayivoser Yaakov levadoi, and Yaakov remained alone, and a man fought with him. He wrestled or struggled with him. Until the break of dawn, until the coming of daybreak. Now this individual, this Ish, who was fighting with Yaakov, he saw that he is not able to vanquish Yaakov. So what did he do? So he touched that area of the thigh of Yaakov in which there is a bulge. In other words, he touched, kaf means a spoon, which means a bulge. He touched the bulge of the thigh, which is the upper part of the thigh. And as, as a result of that, vateka kaf yerch Yaakov imoi. And while Yaakov struggled with him, the bulge of his thigh became dislocated. So therefore, this individual, he saw he couldn't uh, conquer him, so therefore he touched the bulge of his thigh, and consequently that thigh, the bulge of the thigh became dislocated. And this individual said to Yaakov, Shachini, send me, let me go. Ki ola because the dawn rises, I must leave now. So Yaakov said to him, I will not release you, unless you bless me. Yaakov demanded of this individual a blessing as a condition before he would let him go. So this individual said to Yaakov, What's your name? And Yaakov answered, Yaakov. This individual said, No more shall your name be said to be, called, to be Yaakov. But Yisrael, in other words, Yisrael shall be your name. For you have struggled, you have contended with God, and with men, and you have prevailed. You won. And Yaakov then asked the uh, individual, and he said to him, Tell me your name. So the individual replied to him, Why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. And Yaakov, after this event uh, happened, he called the name of the place Pniel. What does Pniel mean? Because I have seen the face of God. I have seen God face to face, in other words. But he not so nafshi, my soul was saved. And the sun shone for Yaakov, Kashiovas Pniel, Pnuel. As Yaakov was going through Penuel, and when the sun shone, Yaakov was limping on his thigh.
Arcane, therefore, the Torah relates, The children of Israel do not eat the gid, the nerve, hanosha that was dislocated, that was displaced, asher al-kaf which is in the bulge of the thigh, ad until this day. Why? Because that individual touched the, the bulge of the thigh of Yaakov, and he dislocated it, begid hanosha, where the, uh, he dislocated the, uh, the nerve. This is what it says in the Torah. Now, let us continue. <clears throat> let us now begin to analyze this incident carefully. And we shall see that from the narrative itself, there arises many difficulties. In addition, many statements that are offered by Chazal in the Talmud, in Gemara, in other words, and in the Medrashim, also defy real clarity and understanding, both in terms of the statement which they themselves offer in regard to this event. And also, they offer, they are difficult to understand in terms of how does the event itself become explained through this statement. Now, it says, Vayivose Yaakov Levadoi. Chazal say that he returned after bringing everybody and everything across the Yabok River to get Pachin Kitanim, which means small vessels, which he had left behind. This is what Chazal say, that the reason why he went back, even after he had transferred all his possessions and his children and his wives across the Yabok River, he went back for Pachin Kitanim, small vessels, which he had forgotten. Now, the question then is, other than the plain meaning of what Chazal say, what are Chazal alluding to in this statement? Is there any greater profound idea when they say that he went back for Pacham Ketanam, small vessels? Now, the Midrash says that the Posik in Dvorim, there is a Posik in Dvorim which says, Ein kokel Yeshurun, there is no one like God, Yeshurun, O Yeshurun, which means which means uh, Israel. There is no one like God, O Israel, O Yeshurun, in other words. Now, this is the literal meaning of the Pasuk. Now, the Medrash says that what this Pasuk really means is not there is no one like God, O Israel, but there really is no one like the Rabbani Shalom, only Israel. Only Israel is like God. In other words, there is no one like God, Yeshurun. But Yeshurun, Yeshurun Istaka, resembles the Rabbani Shlam. Now the Medrash says that this is the meaning of that Pasuk. And who is Yeshurun? This refers to Yaakov. Now how do we know that Yaakov is like God? Because that's what it would mean. In Kokel Yeshurun, there is no one like God except Yeshurun Yaakov Avinu. How do we know that Yaakov is similar to the Rabbani Shlam? Because it says... Levadoi, the word Levadoi, by the Rabbani Shlom. It says a Pasuk, V'nizkov Hashem Levadoi Bayomahu. And in that day, God alone will be exalted. In other words, nobody else will be exalted, will be raised high. On that day, which refers to the Moshe Mashiach, only the Rabbani Shlom will be exalted or raised on high. So we see that Levadoi is in the Pasuk, refers to a divine being. So therefore, 
Just like by the Rabbani Shalom, it says Levadoi, it refers, in that passage, in other words, it refers to the Rabbani Shalom. So also, when it says Levadoi in Vayivose Yaakov Levadoi, and Yaakov shall remain, and, and Yaakov remained alone, that also means, that Levadoi also refers to a divine being. Now, therefore we see that according to the Medrash, Vayivose Yaakov Levadoi, the Medrash is learning out that Yaakov is equal or is similar to God himself because of the word Levadoi. Just like it says in the other Pesach, and God alone will be exalted in that day. So therefore Levadoi refers to a divine being. Also here it says, and Yaakov remained alone. This Levadoi, the one who remained alone, also refers to a divine being. Now we may ask two questions. What does it mean that Yaakov is a divine being? What does that mean? Can we possibly think that Yaakov Avinu is really a god? Also, another question, what is the reason why this unusual idea that Yaakov is a divine being, why, what is the reason that this idea is derived from this particular Pasuk? Because that's where we learn it out from. Because it says Levada here, and Levada over there. So therefore, the Torah derives that Yaakov is a divine being from Vayivosi Yaakov Levadoi. Why is it that this idea of Yaakov's divinity, why is it derived from this particular passage? Is there some connection between this idea of Yaakov's divinity and his fight with the mysterious stranger? That's the question. Now, it then says further, Vayeovek ish imoi ad alois hashocha. And a man fought with Yaakov until the coming of dawn. Who is this stranger that fought with Yaakov? If it was a man, because it says, and a man fought with him, if we are going to learn it literally, then there are many difficulties according to this uh, interpretation. What are the difficulties? First, it says that he merely touched the bulge of his thigh, and he dislocated it. What man could merely by his touch do such damage to another person? That's the first difficulty. Because it says in the Torah, it says that Vayiga, it says there, Vayiga Bekaf Yerechoi, and he touched the bulge of his thigh, and he, Vateka, and he dislocated that, that thigh. What man could merely by his touch inflict such damage on another person. Second, a second difficulty, is why would he want to leave because of the rise of dawn? Because it says, the dawn was coming and, the, and this individual said to Yaakov, let me leave, release me. Why does he want to leave because of the rise of dawn? Third, why would Yaakov seek a bracha from a man who certainly wished to harm him, if not certainly want to outright kill him? Why would, if this is a, a man, why would Yaakov want a bracha from this individual? This individual tried to kill Yaakov. Why should he desire a bracha from him? The fourth difficulty, if we say this is a man, is how could this man know that his name would be changed to Israel? Because he says, lo, 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 he says later when Yaakov asks him for a bracha, he says that lo Yaakov shimcha, your name shall no, more, shall no longer be said to be Yaakov, Yisrael, but Yisrael. In other words, what he's telling Yaakov is that your name will be changed by God himself. How could this man know this kind of idea? Is this man a prophet? 
And lastly, if we assume that this person who struggled with Yaakov is a man, why does Yaakov call the place Peniel, saying that he has seen God face to face and survived? If this is an individual, a man, then what do you mean he has seen God face to face? All these difficulties force us to reject the idea that this stranger was a man. The Medrash, in fact, does say that he was a malach, not a man, but he was a malach. This individual who fought with Yaakov was a malach in the guise of a man. But who was this malach? So the Medrash continues and says that it was Sarishel Esav, the guardian angel or the prince of Esav. That's who this Malach was. But we may ask, who is this Sar? Who is the Sar of Esav? In other words, the Medrash says that this Malach, this individual is a Malach. That this Malach is Sar Shal Esav, the guardian angel or prince of Esav. But who is this Sar? Who is the guardian angel? The Zoyar and the Midrash Tanchuma says that it was none other than Samuel. Samuel is the name of the Satan of the Yetzirah of the Malchamavas. That is his name. The, the uh, Samuel is his real name, Samkel, poison of God, because he tries to get you to do that which is poison to the Rabbanishlam and actually poison to yourself because it won't enable you to get Oilim Habo. That is his name. But the, Malcha, the uh, Satan has three functions. He tries to entice you to do a sin, so he's called the Yitzhahara. Yitzhahara is a functional name. He is called Satan when you did do the sin and he brings you to justice. And he becomes a prosecutor, the adversary, the Satan. So Satan also is a functional name. Malchamovis is also a functional name when you are found guilty of the Chet. Then the Malchamovis executes the judgment. So again, Malchamovis is a functional name. All three names indicate the different tasks that the uh, Sutton is doing, Samuel is doing. But his real name is Samuel. So therefore, the Medrash says that the Sar, the Malach, who is the chief guardian over Esau, is Samuel himself. Now, who is Samuel? He is none other, as I mentioned, than the Sutton, the Malach the king of evil himself. He is the guardian of Esau. In other words, the guardian angel of Esau, Samuel, he reigns over all evil forces in all of creation and is responsible for all evil events that have occurred and that will occur. Imagine who is the guardian angel of Esau, the king, the emperor of all evil that ever was and that ever will be. This is the guardian angel of Esau. Thus, the man who fought Yaakov was none other than Samuel himself disguised as a man. But, this interpretation presents also many difficulties. Even if we say, according to the Medrash, that he wasn't a man, instead he was a Malach, who is Sarashil Esau, who is Samuel himself. This also has many difficulties. Each nation has appointed over it an angel, you should know. Every nation has an angel, a sar, that is appointed over that nation. And the purpose of that angel is to look after its welfare, to look after its benefit. 
Why does Esav have the angel that is also the king of all evil forces? That is, why does he have the angel who is evil personified in a being? Why does he have that angel, Samuel, looking out for his good fortune? Why does Samuel, what does Samuel have to do with Esav? That's the question. Why isn't there some other angel representing Esav? Why the king of evil himself? You don't find that by any other nation that Samuel represents. And that's, that's a, a tremendous uh, lofty situation when the one who represents Esau is the king of evil himself. If you want to answer and say that it is because Esau is very evil, therefore he has the king of evil, evil representing him, you may answer that. But there also is a difficulty. That's not sufficient of an answer. Because one may answer back by saying that there are many evil nations besides Esav or Edoim, which is the nation that, uh, that uh, evolves from Esav. There are many evil nations also, yet they do not have Samuel as their guardian angel. So the question is, why does Esav have Samuel himself to be his guardian angel, the king of all evil? Evil in its greatest personification in, in a being. This is his guardian angel. Why? Now, in the future, when I refer to Samuel, I will not call him Samuel, which means poison of God. I will call him Sam, poison, so rather than saying the entire name. Okay? Now, another difficulty is that we do not find by either Avram or Yitzchok, or by any other person for that matter, previous to, previous to Yaakov, who fought in actual combat with Sam himself in such an obvious fashion. We don't find that anywhere where the Yetzirah incarnate will engage in battle. We don't find this kind of an event occurring with anybody before Yaakov. Why does, therefore, the Sultan fight with Yaakov more than any other person previous to Yaakov? Why didn't he fight with Avram, with Yitzchak, with Noach, with many people before? Why does he himself come down to engage in battle with Yaakov? That's the difficulty. In addition, why does the Sultan wrestle with Yaakov? In other words, what does physical strength signify anyway? Because we said that the Malach, Sam, fights with Yaakov. What does physical strength signify anyway? What does physical prowess or combat prove? Even if the Sultan had won over Yaakov, this would not prove the Sultan's superiority or Yaakov's inferiority, but would merely indicate that an angel is stronger than a man. Therefore, even if the Sultan wants to fight Yaakov, why wrestle with him? since this proves nothing other than physical prowess. That's the question. This proves nothing. It's no kunz. It is no it's not difficult for a malach to beat a human. So then what does the Sultan prove by fighting with Yaakov himself and wrestling with him? This means nothing. Furthermore, why does the Sultan fight with Yaakov at this particular time? Why doesn't he fight with Yaakov previously? Why didn't he fight with Yaakov all the years that Yaakov was with Lavan? Or why not later? 
Why is it now so important for the Sultan to prevail over Yaakov? Another difficulty. Also, the Gemara says in Masech Techulun that in one opinion, according to one individual, Mandiyoma, the Sultan appeared to Yaakov as a goy. In other words, when Yaakov came back, he crossed the river, it was in the middle of the night. All of a sudden he saw this goy, and the goy started fighting with him. So that, there's one opinion that says that the Sultan appeared to him in the guise of a man, but that man was a goy. Now, according to another opinion in that Gemara, the Sultan appeared to Yaakov not as a goy, but as a Talmud Chochem. What is meant by these two opinions? What is especially difficult to understand is when we say that the Sultan appeared as a Talmud Chochem, what does that mean? It's very difficult to conceive of. Did Yaakov really see a Talmud Chochem in the middle of the night? A man with a long beard and pears, right? Is that who he's fighting in the middle of the night? Not only that, but the only Talmud Chochem who can be said to be a Talmud Chochem living at that time, besides Yaakov, was Yitzchak. Who's he, what does it mean that he appeared to him as a Talmud Chochem? What then does the Gemara really mean? Obviously it's a metaphor of some sort. What does it mean? Another question. When a Sutton assumes a human guise or form, what is this guise? What is the general guise that the Sutton assumes when he wants to appear as a man? It's good for us to know, so we'll be able to recognize him. Let us continue with the questions on the incident when Yaakov fought the Malach. It then says in the Pasuk, Vayar and the Malach, who we know is Sam, or the Sutton, when Sam saw Kiloyocholoi, he couldn't vanquish or conquer Yaakov. What did he do? So he touched Yaakov in the bulge of his thigh. Kaf literally means spoon. It means the place of the thigh where the muscle structure looks like a spoon, which means the bulge of the thigh. So in other words, he touched him in that area, the upper part of the thigh. And the bulge of the thigh of Yaakov, in other words, the bone and the sciatic nerve in that area, Vateka became dislocated as Yaakov fought with this Malach. Now, in this Pasuk too, there are many difficulties. <clears throat> if the Sultan could not prevail over Yaakov, as we see, because it says, that he couldn't prevail over him, then how was he able to injure him by dislocating his thigh, bone, and nerve? Where did he suddenly get the power to do this deed? and cause Yaakov painful damage. If it says Yocholoi, he couldn't vanquish him, so then how was he able to give or inflict this injury on Yaakov? Also, why does it say Vayiga Bekaf Yerechoi? And he touched the bulge of the thigh of Yaakov. It should really say Vayake Bekaf Yerechoi. Vayake means, and he smote, he hit him, he gave him a blow, on the bulge of his thigh. Because with such a serious injury, he smote is more appropriate, Vayaki is more appropriate, than he touched, Vayiga. Also, in addition, why does the Sutton hit Yaakov in his thigh region? Why didn't he give him a blow on some other part of his body? Why at that spot? What is the significance of the fact, or what is the significance of the thigh 
that some would strike Yaakov there. Why there and not another place? Another question. Now that the Sultan did strike Yaakov in his thigh, and thereby he dislocated his thigh nerve and his bone, what is the significance and the import of this injury? What does it mean that Yaakov now has an injury in his thigh region? What were the consequences that emerged from this wound? In addition, from the next posseh, it says there, Shalcheni, the Malach says to him, Shalcheni, send me, ki ola hashocha, because dawn arises, I must leave. From that posseh, we see that Yaakov sustained his injury, when? In other words, he sustained his injury at the hands of some right before dawn or daybreak. Because right before then, that's when he touched him and that's when he said, release me. What is the significance of this? What fact of crucial importance would emerge from this aspect? The fact that Yaakov was injured right before dawn. Also, Chazal tell us in Mesech Techulen, again, that the dust that was stirred up during the battle went up as high as the Kisya Kovid. It went up as high as the divine throne. Now, we clear, obviously it means that the dust literally did not go up to the divine throne. Obviously. Obviously it's a metaphor. What do Chazal allude to in this statement? That the dust of their battle went up to Ad Kisya Kovid, up to the divine throne. In addition, the Sipuno says a very strange idea. He says, the Sipuno, which is a commentary in the Chumash, he says that the reason that the Sultan could not prevail over Yaakov, you know why? Was because of Yaakov's enormously intense concentration, concentration on God. That's why he couldn't touch him. In other words, the tremendous dvekus, because dvekus is the state whereby intense, intensely concentrates on the Rabbani Shalom. The tremendous dvekus that Yaakov had toward the Rabbani Shalom and his refusal to stop this dvekus, this state of dvekus, prevented the Sultan from vanquishing Yaakov. Now, what is difficult is to understand is how does Yaakov's, Yaakov's state of dvekus prevent them from being beaten by some in physical battle. In other words, how is concentrating on the Rabbani Shalom an effective defense against physical combat with the Sultan? Now, we find a similar idea expressed in the Midrash Lekach Toiv, where it says over there, that the Sam, the Sultan, could not remove Yisrael, who of course means Yaakov, from the one of the world, from the absolute one of the world, of course, who is the Rabbani Shalom. In other words, the Sultan could not remove Yisrael or Yaakov from dwelling upon the absolute one of the universe. This is what the Midrash Lekach Toiv says. Therefore, the Sultan could not beat Yaakov. Why does the Midrash, when it refers, when it refers to the Rabbani Shalom, Refer to him as Yehudi Shil Oilam, the absolute one of the world. Why doesn't it call him Elokim or Yudke Vovke by his other regular appellations like a Kodesh and so on? Why does it refer to him? Why does it call him? Why does it name the Rabbanu Shlom when it talks about the fact that Yaakov had a dvekas to the Rabbanu Shlom? It calls him by the name Yehudi Shil Oilam, the absolute one of the universe. 
In addition, the question raised before on the idea of the Sipunoi applies here as well. How does dwelling on Yehudah, which is what the Medrash calls the Rabbani Islam, how does this constitute an effective defense against a physical battle with Sam himself? It next says in the following Pasuk, Vayimir Shachini, and the Malach said, Shachini, release me. Why? Ki Ola Shocha, because the dawn rises. Vayimir, so Yaakov said to him, Lo I will not release you, I will not send you, Kim Berachtoni, unless you bless me. Here too we may ask several questions. We see that Yaakov fought with Sam himself the entire night until daybreak, because at daybreak, the Malach asks to be released. What does this aspect signify, or what is the importance of this? In other words, what is the significance of the fact that some fight with Yaakov the entire night? What will this mean? What crucial idea or fact will emerge from this? In addition, another question. We see that Yaakov was able to restrain the Sultan against his will, indicating Yaakov's remarkable strength. Here Yaakov is holding the Sultan back, and the Sultan is begging Yaakov to let him go. If, if then he was so powerful, if he was so strong, why couldn't he vanquish the Sultan before? Say in the middle of the night. Why is it Yaakov couldn't beat the Sultan? If he was so strong now, as indicated with the fact that the Sultan could not leave. In other words, why only now does he display such unusual strength? This is the question. Furthermore, Chazal tell us that the Sultan pleaded to be released in order to sing Shira to God. You should know that every Malach sings Shira, song, to the Rabbani Shalom. And the Sultan told Yaakov, a very interesting idea, a very interesting fact, that from the day that he was created, from the day that the Sultan was created, until now, his time to sing Shira never arrived. Now it has arrived. So the Sultan, so the Sultan begs Yaakov to release him to sing his first Shira. What is the significance of the fact that now the time of the first Shira has arrived for some? Why just, not, why just now? Why not before? It's a remarkable coincidence that all of a sudden, right now, after the fight, Sam tells Yaakov that now I have to sing Shira. For thousands of years, I, my time has never arrived, and now it has? What, what is this, an incredible coincidence? In other words, exactly why is now the time of Shira for the Sultan? And before it wasn't. Also, what is difficult in addition to understand is why Yaakov seeks a bracha from Sam. The Sultan has just tried to literally kill Yaakov. Why does Yaakov seek a bracha from the king of all evil, no less, and from the one who has just tried to terminate him? What is Sam? Some kind of a Rebbe? That Yaakov should seek a bracha from him? Did he give him a kvittle to ask a brocha from Sam? What is Yaakov doing? What is he, a Rebbe that Yaakov should desire a brocha from Sam? From a guy like Sam, from a like Sam, you run. His blessings are the worst thing that you can possibly get involved in. 
Why does Yaakov ask a bracha from the emperor of all evil? Furthermore, nowhere do we find an actual, nowhere do we find rather, an actual bracha from the Sutton to Yaakov. The Sutton merely tells Yaakov that his name will be changed to Yisrael by the Rabbanu Shalom. But this is not a bracha. Rather, it's a revelation to Yaakov of a future event. Where then is the bracha that Yaakov desires? It then says further, Vayumir Elov, and the Malach said to Yaakov, Mashmecha, what's your name? Vayumir Yaakov, and Yaakov answered him, Vayumir, Vayumir, and, and Yaakov answered him, Yaakov. He said, My name is Yaakov. Vayumir, so the Malach said to him, Lo Yaakov, Yaakov, ye Omer, Oichimcha, your name will no more. Longer, no longer be said to be Yaakov, Kim Yisrael, but your name will be Yisrael. Why? im Elokim, because you have struggled, you have contended with the Rabbani Shlam, with God, the Imanoshim, and with men, Fatuchol, and you have prevailed. In other words, Sam tells Yaakov that because he contended with Sotan and with men, and the men that which the Torah refers to, or rather Sam refers to, is Esav and Lovan. Because you have contended with the Sotan and with Esav and Lovan, and he has prevailed, his name shall be Yisrael. Now Yisrael means to prevail against the Sotan. Now the Sotan is called Elohim. When it says Kisariso Elohim, because you have fought or contended with Elohim, who is Elohim referring to? It does not refer to God. It refers to the Sutton. The Sutton is called Elohim. Why is the Sutton called Elohim? The Sutton is called Elohim, which is also God's name in his attribute as a judge. Because the major job or the appointment given the Sutton is to uphold din or justice. And in that respect, he would serve as God's representative to uphold law and justice. And he does this, of course, in his capacity as a prosecutor, at which time when he is prosecuting, he's called the Sutton, the adversary, and his capacity also as an executor, at which time he's called Malachamovas. In other words, Elohim refers to the Sutton. The Elohim is the name that refers to the Rabbanishnam when God acts as a judge. Therefore, since the Sutton represents God, in upholding law and justice. Therefore, the Sutton is also called Elohim because he is the Malach that is designated to uphold law and justice. Therefore, the Sutton is a Sutton, an adversary, and he's a Malchamavist, he's an executor. He brings justice to its fruition. If you deserve something, then the Sutton carries it out. Therefore, the Sutton is called Elohim. So, therefore, the Sutton tells him, Kisariso Melokim, because you have fought with God, meaning myself, the Imanoshim, and with Yaak, and with Lovan, and Esav, Vatuchol, and you have prevailed. Thus, because Yaakov has successfully vanquished the Sutton, who of course is called Elohim, and Esav and Lovan, who is the Anoshim, he gains the name Yisrael, which means just that. What is difficult to understand is two points. What is the exact relationship between the rationale which is provided by the Sutton 
What is the rationale? You have contended with the Sutton and with Asaph and Lovon and have prevailed. What is the exact relationship between the rationale provided by the Sutton as to why he would receive a name changed to Israel and why his name was really changed? In other words, how does this rationale really explain his name changed to Israel away from Yaakov? Because he has contended with the Sutton and with Lovan and Esau, therefore his name should be changed from Yaakov to Israel. Why should his name be changed just because he vanquished the Sutton, Esau, and Lovan? The second difficulty is that later on, when the Rabbanu Shalom does speak to Yaakov, and over there he does change his name, he changes his name from Yaakov to Israel, we do not find the Rabbanu Shalom offering any rationale whatsoever like the Sutton. He doesn't say there, the Rebbeinu does not say over there that I am changing your name because which is the rationale why I'm changing your name. He doesn't offer the rationale that the Sutton offered now. Only the Sutton offers a reason for the name change. Why is this so? Why is the Rebbeinu does not offer that rationale? Now, Yaakov then asks this Malach his name. The Malach responds and says, why do you ask my name? Yaakov knows that the Malach's name is Sam, the Sar of Esav. Why then does he ask Sam's name, seeing that he knows who, opponent is really, who his opponent really is? Also, why doesn't Sam answer Yaakov? Why does he rebuff Yaakov and not answer him? Why doesn't he answer his name? It doesn't make sense. Yaakov knows who he's fighting, Sam. So then why does he ask him his name? And why doesn't Sutton answer him? It then says that Yaakov called the name of the place where he fought Peniel. In other words, the place where he fought the Sutton, he calls it Peniel. Why? Because Because I have seen God face to face and my soul was saved. So therefore Peniel means Penekel, the face of God. In other words, Yaakov calls the name of the place where the incident occurred Peniel. We know from before that Elohim refers to Samuel. Therefore, when it says Kiro Isi Elohim, because I have seen God, he means I have seen Sam, Ponim El Ponim, Vatinot Nashi. He's obviously referring to the individual he just fought. Why was Yaakov so overwhelmed by Sam that to remember this event he would call this place a special name? Yaakov had seen many Malochim before. He had seen many real angels before. If you recall, it says, Vayishlach Yaakov Malochim, that Yaakov sent out angels to Esau. And Rashi over there says that it means Mamash, real angels. He saw angels many times. So why was he so overwhelmed all of a sudden by the sudden that he should actually call the name of that place Pniel, which means that he had seen the Sutton face to face. He certainly was accustomed to their presence. Why should he be so emotionally overcome by the sight of the Sutton? It then says, By Yizrach Loi Hashemesh, and the sun shone for him, referring to Yaakov, Kasha is Penuel, as he was going through that place, Penuel, and as he was going through it, he was limping on his thigh. We may ask, why it says, and the sun shone for him, by Yisrach loy Hashemesh, and the sun shone for him. It should say, by Yisrach Hashemesh, and the sun shone. Did it not shine for the entire world? 
It should therefore say, and the sun shone. What do you mean, and the sun shone for him, for Yaakov? Also, why is it that the Torah calls the place Penuel, not Peniel? Because the name Peniel is the name that was given by Yaakov to that place. Whereas when the Torah calls it play, the place, it calls it Penuel. Why does it call it? Why does it not call it by the same name that Yaakov gave it? Also, we find in Nach that the name of that place is also called Penuel, not Peniel, like Yaakov gave it. Why the change? Yaakov names the place Peniel. We name, the Torah calls it Penuel, and later on in history it's also called Penuel. Why the name change? Furthermore, it says that when the sun rose, Yaakov was limping because of his dislocated thigh. What then is the significance of this particular aspect? That he was limping on his thigh after the sun rose. It then, then says, Therefore the children of Israel do not eat the dislocated thigh because of what happened by the incident of Yaakov and the Malach. The Jews do not eat of the Gid Hanosheh. The Gid means the nerve, the sciatic nerve, Hanosheh, that was displaced. The sciatic nerve is in the thigh, and this was displaced. This Gid Hanosheh, the Jews do not eat, because the Malach touched Yaakov there and displaced this sciatic nerve. Why do we observe this mitzvah because of this incident? What is the connection between the mitzvah and the battle that transpired between Yaakov and Sam? Is it merely to commemorate the victory that Yaakov had? Or is there a more profound reason why we observe this mitzvah? Now, after Yaakov successfully vanquishes the Sultan, the Tsar of Esav, he then meets Esav, who is accompanied by 400 men. In this encounter, rather than engage in battle with each other, in other words, Yaakov with Esav, Instead, they reaffirm their brotherly relationship and part from each other in a friendly spirit. This is what happens when Yaakov meets Esav. The Torah then says in a posuk, Vayovo Yaakov Sholem Yishchem. And Yaakov came to the city of Shechem, Sholem. Now, Sholem can be translated as complete or whole and intact. Rashi says, what is Vayovo Yaakov Sholem Yishchem and Yaakov came to the city of Shechem whole or intact? What does that mean? Rashi says that when he came to Shechem, the city of Shechem, he was whole or intact as regards to three areas. One is that he was whole or intact as regards to his physical health. In other words, he was cured of his limp that he got from the Malach. So he was Sholem in that respect. The second thing that he was whole or intact in is, is regards to his wealth. In other words, he got back all the wealth that he gave Esau. He was able to replace all the wealth that he gave Esau in the form of gifts. The Rabbani Shalom gave him success, and as a result of his success, he was able to regain all of his uh, wealth, and nothing was diminished as a, uh, as a result of the fact that he gave Esau those presents. And the third thing that Rashi says, that he was whole or intact as regards to all his Torah knowledge. In other words, he forgot nothing of his Torah that he learned by the yeshiva of Aver, even though he had gone through 20 years worth of loving. He forgot nothing of his Torah, which indicates a remarkable spiritual feat, obviously.
that want to be alone in the midst of evil, especially Lovan, and not forget any Torah, and not to be diminished at all in his ruchnis or spirituality. That's an awesome achievement. In any case, the question that I would like to ask is that, is there another meaning to the word complete, sholem, besides that which, is, which Rashi offers? In other words, and Yaakov came to the city of Shechem, sholem, complete. Is there a, another kind of understanding that addresses itself to the primus that the word sholem would indicate? That's the question I'd like to ask. Now, the Torah then continues and says that Yaakov erected a mezbeach there and it says in the Pesach and he called it, referring to the mezbeach loy refers to the mezbeach he called it Kel Elokei Yisrael God, the God of Israel that's what Yaakov called that mezbeach Kel Elokei Yisrael God, the God of Israel now the Medrash offers a rather strange interpretation of this particular phrase. It says that Yaakov declared to the Rabbani Shalom that you, God, are God in the heavens, in the celestial spheres, and I am God on earth, in the terrestrial sphere. Now, Rav Huna in Rish Lokish's name said that the Rabbani Shalom rebuked Yaakov, saying, even a Shamish in a synagogue does nothing without the authority of the Rav. Yet you refer to yourself as one who has true authority. In other words, you call yourself a God. Tomorrow, your daughter Dina will go out and be dishonored. In other words, let us see if Shechem, who will dishonor your daughter, will reckon with your importance. Therefore, it says right after that posset, Vatetze Dina, and Dina went out. And this, of course, is an oinish to Yaakov because he attributed to himself the fact that he was also a god uh, in the terrestrial sphere. Thus, it says that Yaakov called himself a god and called the Rabbanishlam a god. Therefore, it says in the Pasuk, Vayikuloi, and he called, not loy referring to the Mizbeach, but Vayikuloi, and he called himself, Kael, a god, and he called the Rabbanishlam El Yisrael, the god of Israel. Now, we may ask, how come Yaakov, who was such a great onof, as we know, because it says, I am unworthy of all the great kindnesses which you have shown me. This is what Yaakov has prayed before he would encounter Esau. How come Yaakov, who was such a great onof, should have fallen into making an arrogant statement of this nature? That's the first question. In addition, why do we find Yaakov making this arrogant statement now at this time? What occurred to Yaakov that he would have been led into the sin of Gaiva at this particular time? Now, we have asked a total of 34 questions on this particular incident. The incident or event of the ba battle that Yaakov has with this Malach. You will see that every question which was posed can be answered according to the underlying hidden theme of the story of Yaakov and Esau. Not only that, but that this event had to happen in consequence with the concealed plot. In other words, that which transpired before demanded or necessitated that this particular event should happen, that Yaakov must battle a Malach. But before we can seek a satisfactory resolution to these difficult questions, a few major concepts must be presented and understood. 
Before the Chet of Odom Rishon and his consequent fall, man was to battle ignorance. Ignorance of who the Rabbanu Shalom really is and his true relationship to this world. That is what man was supposed to battle. Ignorance. Now, the state of concealment of this particular truth was made by the Rabbanu Shalom. In other words, this God-made concealment of who God is is called the original chasson in creation. That deficiency in creation, that ignorance which man would have, was made by the Rabbanu Shalom. God made creation devoid or deficient in the fact that he relates to the universe as its source of being. That was not perceived by any living being, especially man. After Adam sinned, the Satan, who was originally created to only offer man a temptation to pursue an alternative imagined truth and nothing more, he was given enormous control over the physical universe. His role was now changed. He could now, he that is the Satan, could now introduce far greater states of concealment about who the Rabbanishim really is than previously existed. This was his new function. This was his new power. This increased state of concealment introduced by the Satan or the Sitra Ahra is called kilku or damage. His power, the Satan's power that is, is directly proportional to the sins of man. When man has the power of tikkun and kilkul of creation. If man sins or goes against what the Rabbani Shalom wants, then his power to conceal truth is greatly multiplied. The power of the Satan to hide or conceal the true reality that God is the source of being of all creation, this truth is great, the concealment of this truth is greatly multiplied, in consequence to man's sin. If man, however, does not sin, but rather pursues truth and God's commandments, his power, the Satan's power, is subsequently tremendously diminished. Thus, whereas previously man battled ignorance, and the Satan was merely a being that was created merely to tempt man to offer him an alternative imagined truth, he man now battles the forces of evil themselves. As stated previously, it is the task of the now as stated previously, it is the task of the Mashiach ben Yusuf primarily to battle the Sitra Akhra and completely to render him powerless by utterly subduing the Satan and all his army of evil beings. But you may ask, how does a man battle the Sitra Akhra? How does he vanquish him? What is the exact mechanism by which he conquers the Sitra Akhra? There are basically three ways. The first is when man directs all his material wealth, his possessions, his energies, and his time toward the service of the Rabbanishim's will, doing the Rabbanishim's commandments, and not toward the fulfillment of his own will and the gratification of his own desires. At this stage, man is said to be over the Sitra Akhra. Man uses that which he has, and he uses it only toward the service of the Rabbanu Shalom, and toward no other reason. Now, the second way, which comes into actual actuality, 
is when man fails in the first method. The second method then is, is that he is forced to be under the sitra akhra by being dominated and subjugated by individuals or nations who engage in tremendous evil and wickedness. They, that is nations and evil individuals, can thus be said to be the very agents of the sitra akhra. Man, then, under the dominance and influence of these evil agents, nations or individuals, must now try to remain righteous and pursue the Rabbanishim's will. This second approach is obviously far more difficult than the first one. The second approach, then, of course, means that man has tremendous impetus not to listen to the Rabbanishim. He is under the domination and influence of nations or individuals, and it is very difficult to follow the rotten of the Rabbanishim. The third method is where man is again under the domination and influence of evil nations, but now, in addition, they are also persecuted and made to endure great suffering at the hands of these evil nations or evil individuals. This method is now introduced when the second method has not been successful. In other words, if man does not, or rather fails in the second method, and cannot subdue the sitra akhra by being under the dominance and influence of evil nations or individuals who are the sitra akhra's agents and remain righteous, then the third method is introduced when man must suffer at their hands and in that way the sitra akhra is subdued. In all three approaches, the sitra akhra's power and control is diminished until he is rendered helpless and impotent. All three methods work to achieve this goal. The only question, of course, is that which method is more desirable, which method is more difficult to endure. The essential principle in how to subdue the sitra akhra is the following. The sultan is given dominion and control over the physical body. The sultan introduces all manner of drives and urges in that body that he is given dominion and control over. When a sudden functions in this capacity, he is called the Yetzirah, or evil inclination. Now the other roles of the sudden, which we know, of course, is the role of sudden, which is when the sudden is a prosecutor. And the, set, and the, uh, the last name that the sudden has, of course, is Malchamovus, when he executes judgment. In any case, when the sudden introduces, or when he functions as the Yetzirah, he introduces all manner of drives and urges in his body. The neshama is now also given dominion and control over the human body by being connected to it. In other words, the same body that the satan has control over as the Yitzhahara, the neshama is now inserted into it and is now connected to it. Thus, both the satan and the neshama vie for ultimate control over the same human body. If the neshama gives in to these urges and drives, then the sitra akhra or the satan gains power over the body itself and over the universe itself. If the neshama resists the bodily urges and instead directs these urges in the service of the rabbi Islam, then the sitra akhra is greatly subdued and its power is greatly diminished, not only in the body itself, but over all creation. Thus, only by battling the Sitra Akhra in a common arena, and this arena, of course, happens to be the human body, can one subdue him. 
The Neshama and the Sitra Akhra have power over the same battleground. They both fight with each other for supremacy over this battleground. The Guf is that battleground. The Neshama and the Sotan have control over it. Each one battles for supremacy of the human body. If the Neshama wins, then the Sotan is subdued. If the Sotan wins, of course, then the Neshama is subdued. There is no other way to beat the Sotan. But it's important to realize one may fight different aspects of the Sitra Akhra. The term Sitra Akhra means the other side. This term is in contrast to the term Sitra Dikidusha or the holy side, which refers to, or this term, the holy side, contains all the forces of good and holiness. The Sitra Akhra, or the other side, on the other hand, contain all the forces that are evil and wish to promote evil. This includes the army of the Klippos, which is the hosts, or the uh, uh, underlings of the Satan, and the Satan himself. We know the Satan himself is called Samuel, who is the king of all evil, and is the greatest personification of evil itself. Now, Samuel is the very shirish or the root of the Sitra Akhron. He is the king of evil, while his hosts or the Klippas are the branches of evil. One may engage in battle with the Klippas, or one may engage in battle with the Sultan himself, with Samuel himself. One may engage in battle with the Klippas, but it is very rare to battle Samuel himself. How can one tell if one is battling Samuel or the Sherish of all evil rather than merely the Klippus? How does one tell this? Generally speaking, when one fights Samuel, one is suddenly overcome by a drive which is awesome in its intensity and exhibits far greater pressure to fulfill that urge than is normally found in most people. This immense drive which is a simon, a symptom of the fact that you are battling Sam himself, is quantitatively superior, actually vastly superior, to the average drive in a person. If it is experienced by an average individual, if an average individual has this kind of enormous intense drive, it can devastate that person. If it, is, if it persists continuously in, that, in an average individual, then you should know that it can wreak havoc with that unfortunate individual and literally destroy him. Because it is almost impossible for an individual, an average person, to withstand that enormous intense drive that Samuel himself gives to the human body. Obviously, individuals who are engaged in battle with Samuel himself are individuals who have enormous spiritual strength and stamina. Anyone of less stature would capitulate almost immediately to the Sitra Akhra, to Samuel himself. Yet if creation is to be rectified or achieve a Tikkun, if creation is to be corrected and the original state of perfection should, is achieved, 
then not only the klipas of the Sitra Akram must be overcome and subdued, but also the Shirish of the Sitra Akram himself must be vanquished. This Shirish is Samoel himself. Thus, there are individuals who are designated to fight Samoel in order to bring about the ultimate victory over the Sitra Akram, and thereby massacring the Kilkan creation. There are, on the other hand, individuals, of course, who are engaged in the battle of the Klippus. But there are certain specific designated individuals who must fight the Shirish of all evil, the king of all evil, Samuel himself. But you may ask, which individuals have this task of fighting Samuel himself? Who is designated for such an incredibly difficult task? The answer is, that he who has a neshama, which is a shirish for other neshamas, he who has a soul that is a foundation soul for other souls, in other words, where other souls can emanate from him, is that individual. In addition, that neshama is also in the union of Mashiach ben Yosef, because we know that it is the union of Mashiach ben Yosef to fight the Sitra Akhra and to remove the Kilkul from creation. It is the Indian of Ben Yosef to wage war with the forces of evil and subdue them. Therefore, the individual who will fight Samuel himself will be an, an individual who has an Ishama, a foundation Ishama, and secondly, who will be in, involved in the Indian of Mashiach Ben Yosef. Who was this individual who was designated to fight Samuel at first? Esav was one of those individuals designated to fight and subdue Samuel or the Shurish of the Sitra Achra. Esav, as we know, was a Shurish Neshama and also involved in the union of Mashiach ben Yosef, which I had mentioned in previous Shurim. In addition, Esav had potentially enormous strength and endurance to battle any evil force, including Samuel himself. Witness Esav's incredible mitzvah of Kibudov, that he honored his father. Witness Esav's incredible Kibudov toward Yitzchak, which for Esav would be the most difficult mitzvah to perform because of his tremendous arrogance and haughtiness. In other words, the most difficult mitzvah that Esav could possibly perform is one that goes against his enormous feelings of arrogance. What mitzvah of that? That mitzvah would be a mitzvah which demands submission to authority. That goes contrary to his own arrogance. What mitzvah demands submission to authority? That is the mitzvah of Kibidov. Yet we find that he performed this mitzvah, as I had previously mentioned, greater than any man who ever lived. Therefore we see that Esav clearly had the ability to fight someone himself and win if he would so choose. And he had the Bechira. And he had the wherewithal. He had the spiritual strength to do this. This then was Esav's task to fight Samuel, the Shurish of all evil, and subdue him. And thereby he would enormously diminish the power of Samuel himself. Therefore, Esav was placed in a body that was under the control of Samuel himself. Samuel, who is the Shurish of the Sitra Akram, had dominion to an extraordinary degree over the human body that Esav's neshama would be placed in. That is why we find Esav, even in the fetal stage, possessing 
such enormous and incredible drives toward idolatry and other evils, even before Esav was born. Esav's neshama and Samuel would now vie for control over Esav's body. The task of Esav in this circumstance would be to subdue Samuel himself by being completely righteous. Now he was aided in this task by being given enormous potential in spiritual greatness, as I had pointed out, and also by being placed in a spiritual, spiritually conducive environment of great proportions. He was the son of Yitzchok and Rivka, and the grants of, of, of Avram and Sarah. They would be his teachers, they would be his models. This was the task of Esau, to fight Samuel himself, the shirish of all evil, to subdue him and to enormously weaken the shirish of all evil. And only he could do that because he had a tremendous spiritual potential, tremendous strength. If he would want to battle the Sitra Akhra, Samuel himself, as indicated by his tremendous observance of Kibbut Aim, of uh, Kibbut Ova Aim, and also the fact that Esav had as his models and his teachers and as his progenitors, his father Yitzchok and his mother Rivka, his grandfather Avram and his grandmother Sarah. This then was the real task of Esav. He is a Sherish Neshama. He must battle the Sherish of the Sitra Akhra. He is the, in the union of Mashiach Ben Yosef. He must battle that which Ben Yosef must battle. The Samuel, the entire Sitra Akhra, in order to begin to massacre the Kilkul in creation, in order to begin to undo the Chet of Odom Horishan. That is what Esau's task was. But Esau fell instead. Instead of ruling over the Sitra Akhra, he was to be its servant. Instead of subduing Samuel, the Shurish of all evil, he became its primary agent. We will continue next week.